and welcome to Bird of the Week. It's a podcast about birds, released on a non-weekly basis. Episode 30, Spooky Birds! <laughs> Today we're looking at birds that induce feelings of horror. The terrible, unspeakable, hideous abominations of the avian world. I had this idea ages ago and thought it would be a fun tie-in for Halloween, but apparently I can't keep a schedule. Probably has something to do with that real job I do, whatever the hell that is. But better late than never. I'll be honest, there is no grand, overarching theme that will tie these birds together and teach us something deeper about our feathered friends. It's just, every now and again, you come across a bird that's got some creepy vibes, so why not lump them together and celebrate the spooks. So this will be a little anthology episode. I got five birds with a reputation for being repulsive, ominous, or depraved. So let's have a little fun and see how we go. Welcome to the nightmare. (laughs) There is maybe no bird with a reputation more connected to bad omens than the raven. Those grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, and ominous birds of yore. At least according to Edgar Allan Poe. You could dedicate a whole podcast to the history of the raven's depiction and culture, and still not scratch the surface, so let me promise you, this will be the briefest of descriptions. Ravens are a member of the corvid family, specifically the genus Corvus. This is a big old genus of about 45 birds containing all ravens and crows, and one bird that is known simply as the rook. There's no strict difference between a crow and a raven, except traditionally ravens tend to be bigger birds that have heckles on their throat. But that isn't super consistent throughout the world, so it's more a matter of knowing which one is which. Which isn't all that easy, because most of them are just jet black birds. Now, while corvids are a bit creepy, of far more interest to ornithologists is their intelligence. Crows and ravens are some of the smartest birds out there. The New Caledonian crow is one of the only non-mammalian animals that has ever been observed using tools. Another research suggests that crows may also possess a theory of mind, which is the understanding that other beings possess an intelligence or may know things that you don't, which means that you can trick or exploit your opponent. Which is all quite fascinating, but not the thing we're talking about today. If you want to learn more, go back and listen to episode 5 on avian intelligence. Now, there are probably three things that have led ravens and crows to be associated with bad omens and horror in general. One is their plumes. They are clothed in all-black garb, the colour of mourning, the colour of evil, the colour of night and the unknown. I mean, bad guys, right? They always wear black. Darth Vader, Voldemort, Saruman the White. Wait a minute. Second is their less than melodious call. They make a mournful croak or an elongated caw. Roll the audio. (coughs) The sound is harsh and unpleasant. 
No bird that sings like a crow is going to be associated with puppies and rainbows. And third is their tendency to feed on carrion. Crows love corpses. They are scavenger feeders. They're not big or strong enough to kill too much outright themselves, but they love picking over the remains of roadkill and other deceased beasts. Taken together, the corvids and their kin are associated with death, which numerous cultures around the world have latched onto. Because of this association, ravens are often seen as bad omens. They prophesize the coming of death or destruction. Because they feed on corpses, in some cultures they are also seen as intermediaries between the physical world and the afterlife. They guide the dead to the next realm. They are sometimes known as psychopomps, the spirits that ferry people to the afterlife, kind of like an avian version of Hades. Perhaps their most famous depiction is in Edgar Allan Poe's poem Raven, where a hapless young man who is mourning the loss of his love is visited by a raven that speaks only the word nevermore. Within the poem, the narrator believes the raven is a prophet. It is associated with his lost love, and he speaks to it as if it can communicate across time and into the spirit world. Of course, the raven just repeats the word nevermore, and the narrator goes a bit crazy trying to apply an interpretation as to what the word means. So, a reflection may be on his own grief-stricken mind more than the raven itself. Nevertheless, symbolism. But this isn't a literature podcast. Yet. They also sometimes associated with witchcraft and magic. Crows are often depicted as a common familiar for witches. One of my favourite paintings, The Magic Circle by John William Waterhouse, has a group of crows huddled around a witchy figure. Think even of the three-eyed raven from Game of Thrones, a future-seeing, prophesying being. It is even said that if the resident ravens that live in the Tower of London ever leave the Tower, the British Empire will fall. Again, the ravens prophesize destruction and ruin. Death, magic, prophecy, the future. Every culture on Earth has similar connotations when it comes to the raven. Maybe one day I will come back and do a more complete examination on the Corvidan culture. But I don't want to get too bogged down today because we have four other birds to take a look at. So on to bird number two. Now, I've spoken about vampiric birds before. There are at least two species of birds that are specialist bloodsuckers, the oxpecker and the vampire ground finch. But if you want to hear about them, go back and listen to episode 25 on parasitic birds. So instead of vampires, let's talk about zombies. And to talk zombies, we need to travel to Hungary, just a short skip away from Transylvania. And there we will find the most fiendish of birds, the Great Tit. Now, I know what you're thinking, tits aren't terrifying. And indeed they're not, they're titillating. They're some of the smallest, cutest, prettiest birds getting around. The Great Tit is a common bird across most of Europe. They've got black heads, white cheeks, and yellow breasts. They're a bright songbird. Their broader family has a cosmopolitan distribution. In North America, they're known as chickadees. In Europe, they're known as tits. The great tit, as the name suggests, is one of the largest members of the family, growing to about 14 centimetres in length, which, for a tit, is pretty big. And far from being terrifying, people love these birds. They're a friend of most gardeners because they feed on all the nasty, creepy crawlies that tend to eat plants. They feed their chicks such copious volumes of caterpillars 
The studies have shown an orchard with a tit nest is healthier than one without. So then what dastardly deeds are these little birds getting up to behind our back to warrant their featuring on this episode? Well, unlike many European songbirds, great tits don't migrate in the winter. This makes them another favourite for people because they add a rare splash of colour during the cold months. But winter can be hard on a little bird when their normal prey items aren't around. If the tits are going to survive, they need to toughen up. You need tough titties. When food gets scarce and Hungarian tits get hungry, they turn to an unlikely food source, the brains of bats. You see, bats don't migrate either but they do hibernate. And in their hibernated state, they can't really defend themselves. Hibernation is different from sleep. The body has basically shut down and it takes a long time to boot back up, so you are vulnerable while in that state. Over the years, the tits have discovered that they can venture into the bat's caves, peck their skulls in, and lap up their brains without any resistance. And yes, they only eat the brains and discard the rest of the body. Wasteful, wasteful tits. Brains are particularly protein-rich, so the tits probably figure that for the best effort-to-reward ratio, it's better to move on to the next bat than pick through the remains of the less nutritious body. Grizzly bears do a similar thing with salmon. Bears will eat the skin and brains of the fish and discard the body because these are the easiest parts to eat and it isn't worth their time picking through the bones. It's far easier just to catch another fish. At least that's our best theory as to why the bears do it, and so the tits are probably doing something similar. By all accounts, this grisly winter feasting has been going on for some time, with locals reporting it anecdotally since at least the 1990s. The behaviour has been passed down from generation to generation, and appears to have spread through the whole tit community via social learning. Turns out tits are quite intelligent and capable of learning through observation and insight as opposed to trial and error. I mean, and let's face it, if you're marooned in an icy wasteland, sometimes you're gonna have to resort to desperate means, and on the spectrum of things, eating bat's brains doesn't seem all that bad to me. I'm told it's an acquired taste. But it does answer one important question. In a fight between a zombie and a vampire, we now know who would win. Those who crave brains will always trump those who seek blood. Our next bird is spooky for a different reason. This would be the common loon, and no, it isn't because they're lunatics. Although loons are odd birds, they're a freshwater-loving fowl from North America. They're shaped similar to a grebe, although the two birds are not related at all. Loons seem to be distantly related to albatross, petrels, and penguins. They've got a dagger-like bill, blood-red eyes, white underbellies with a black-and-white checker-patterned back. Loons rarely come onto land because their lakes provide all. Loons are expert fishers. Using their powerful webbed feet, they can dive up to 60 metres deep. But to get this power, they have made a trade-off. And the consequence of having powerful flipper feet is that they're basically useless on land. Their feet are set so far behind their centre of mass that when they do step onto land, the best they can manage is to push themselves about while their belly drags on the ground. And so, the loon tries to stay off land. They float about on their lake, eating and sleeping on the water, 
If they ever need to move further, they run along the surface of the water until they have enough speed to get into the air. When they come back down, it is straight back onto another lake. No land required. So that's all good and well, but what makes the loon spooky? Well, it is their call, or more specifically, their wail. Roll the audio! It's a very mournful cry, rather haunting. The call is often compared to a wolf's howl. This is a kind of contact call that the birds use with each other to stay in touch if they have been foraging on different sides of their lake. Now, Hollywood loves this sound. It is often used as a grab to help create an atmospheric feel. It was first predominantly featured in the 1980s film On Golden Pond, more so because loons featured in the movie. But since then, it turns up whenever a director wants to create a sense of isolation or foreboding. It can be heard in all sorts of movies from Harry Potter, to the Marvel films, to 1917, the recent World War I pick. The call has become such a ready-made grab for sound engineers that it is starting to stray into the realm of cliché. Often the call is used regardless of if a loon would be common to the area or not. For example, the Australian wilderness has featured loon calls, as has Thanos' home planet in the Marvel films. Even extraterrestrial planets can get the loon treatment. And in part, you can understand why. The loon sounds almost otherworldly. The only problem is that now I've pointed it out, every time you hear a loon in a film, it will instantly stand out like a sore thumb and ruin your immersion. You're welcome. So Hollywood loves the loon because of its creepy vibe, but really all the loon is trying to say is, Hello, I'm over here. Where are you? For our last two birds, let's go to Africa and meet a pair of storks. Our first stork is the marabou stork. And if you have ever seen the marabou stork, then you know exactly why they are featuring in this episode. They have to be one of the ugliest birds that has ever flapped across the sky. Let me paint you a word picture. The marabou stork is a huge bird. They stand about 1.5 meters tall and have a wingspan of over 3 meters. Big bird. Their wings and back are black. Their chests are white. But their most prominent feature is their face. From the shoulders up, they are featherless. They have a long bare neck covered in pink wrinkled skin. The skin around their eyes is a mottled black and orange, so patterned to look almost flaky. They have a tuft of white down feathers on top of their head that looks like the straggled wispy remains of hair a balding man is trying to cling onto. Their beaks are shaped like a broad sword, wide at the head and tapering to a dagger-like point at the tip. And to top it all off, they sometimes have a dangling, pendulous sack that hangs off their neck. Yeah, technically, it's called a gula sack. I call it bloody revolting. The overall appearance is to make them look like a stork crossed with a vulture. They are the thing of nightmares. Now, the reason they look like a vulture is because they have the lifestyle of a vulture. Their food of choice is dead, decaying things. They like to pick over corpses. It is suspected 
that just as the vulture is bold because they like to get neck deep in the body cavity of dead things, the marabou stork is bold for the same reason. Head feathers would just get matted in entrails, and that isn't fun for anyone. Just like the vulture, though, the marabou stork plays an important ecological role, recycling dead animals back into the food chain and removing potential biohazards from the environment. If you want to learn more about vultures, I've got a whole episode on that too. That's number 24. While the marabou stork prefers to scavenge for their food, they are so big that if the opportunity comes along, they will eat pretty much anything that will fit down their giant throats. They have been known to eat other birds, including pigeons, pelican and cormorant chicks, and even flamingo babies. Increasingly, though, they have become a common sight at dumps, picking over the remains of our waste. They've even been known to eat shoes, which is pretty hardcore. It's a rich, aesthetic tapestry that all builds towards the real gross factor these birds are rocking. They're an unusual bird who has made unusual choices. They're creepy, decay-feasting, dumpyard-dwelling, shoe-eating freaks. And I think they're great. Now, our last Halloween-worthy bird is also footwear-themed, and it's the shoebill stork, another tall bird from sub-Saharan Africa. And this is maybe the most terrifying bird out there, so let's find out why. First, they're not a stork. Although they have a similar appearance and proportions to a stork, they're actually more closely related to pelicans. Now, shoebills are hectic birds. They're almost totally grey, they're so big and prehistoric looking, they're sometimes called dino birds. They look like they come straight out of the Jurassic. The shoebill is named after its most prominent feature, its giant bill. Apparently people think it looks like a shoe. And I mean, maybe like a Dutch clog or something, but it certainly ain't shaped like anything I'd put my feet in. Their bill is so large that they are sometimes called the whale bill. And this bill is lethal. Shoebills, like the storks, they are not, are birds of the wetlands. They use their long legs to pad about in deep water. And they are famed for being one of the stillest and most silent of stalkers. They will very, very, very slowly sneak up on their prey, keeping dead still for great lengths of time before moving. And then, when their prey is in range, they will suddenly strike with that beast of a bill. And if the shoe bill gets you in its bill, that is pretty much the end of the show. It's sharp enough to decapitate young crocodiles. So that's a thing. But this isn't the reason why the shoe bill has made it onto our list of spooky birds. I mean, don't get me wrong, it helps. Because yes, they are hardcore, stone-cold killers. But that's just what they do to hunt. And I mean, hey, birds gotta eat. They also make this really unsettling clacking noise with their bill. Roll the audio! Which again, sounds pretty prehistoric to me. But no, the shoebill makes it onto this list because of what they do when they're babies. You see, the shoebill always lays two eggs in its nest, but only one chick ever makes it to maturity. The second chick is just insurance in case the older one dies. The shoebills have an heir and a spare, which is all good and well, except Harry ain't making it. When the older chick reaches a certain age, it will start picking on the younger one. It will peck and bully 
its younger sibling, and the parents do nothing to help the little one out. For the shoebill, it is survival of the fittest. The older one won't allow the youngster to feed, and eventually the poor little tyke is left to die. Which means that every adult shoebill killed its sibling while it was a chick. Shoebills are dark. There can be only one. Ironically, when it comes to people, reportedly the shoebill is quite a docile creature. Apparently, if you're not competing for its parents' attention, they're quite a chill bird. Also, as long as you're not a fish that it wants to eat. But that brings us to the end of our collection of spooky birds. We've had some brain eaters, child killers, a chilling sound effect, a straight up uggo, and a crow. It's been a bit of fun, but really, there isn't anything creepy about these birds at all. Each one found a way to adapt to living in a hostile environment. If we find anything creepy in their behaviour, that's really more a reflection on us. I think they're all gorgeous. Even the marabou stalk, and it is one butt-ugly bird. At any rate, I hope you had a bit of fun today. And next time, we're going to do a more traditional episode, and we're going to meet some handsome birds, the owls. They're a fascinating group of nocturnal predators, and I can't wait to tell you all about them. But now, if you still want some more bird action, I've got some good news. Our bonus podcast called What's Up With That Bird's Name has just come out, and this week it is all about our friend the turkey. Forget Halloween, Thanksgiving is fast coming upon us, and I need to tell you the wild story about how the wild turkey got its name. And for the low, low price of just $2 a month, you can find out all about it. All you need to do is swing on over to Patreon forward slash Bird of the Week or one word link in the description to find out more. And if you're feeling especially generous and want to make a bigger contribution, then you too can get a special thank you from me in the show. Just like my good friends Jill Chalker, Jody Little, Debbie Hode, Innes of Cine Illustrations, and Richard Clark, the Minty Fresh. And as always, if you'd like to receive a bird in your inbox each week, then drop me a line at weekly.bird at outlook.com. And I'll add you to the mailing list where you will get a new bird lovingly delivered to you for free each and every week. I mean, hey, who doesn't want more birds in their inbox? At any rate, thank you for listening, and I hope you'll tune in again next time. Until then, this has been Bird of the Week. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting on the pallid bust of Pallas just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming, and the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul, from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor, shall be lifted nevermore.